I have the awesome privilege of concluding the series that Pastor Carol started three weeks ago called Messages from Malachi. And um, one of the ways I would love for us to view chapter four today, which is the last chapter that I'm doing, is that, uh, you know, when the Bible was being chaptered and versed, was not necessarily to uh, cut chapters as though they happened at different times. Uh, some stories are a continuation from one end to another. All right? The verses and chapters are there to just help us uh, divide the Bible properly. So view chapter 4 as a continuation of the whole story as a message that started in chapter 1, as we understand it. And so Pastor Andrew, uh, two weeks ago, I think, preached uh, on chapter 3 of of Malachi and he spoke about how God refines us by the fire of his testing and he talked about the the gift of generosity and and tithing and went on to explain the principles of tithing and then the reward for his faithful trusting or our faithful trusting in God. Pastor Carol preached last week. I want to introduce with the summary of her message last week which I found to be profound. I was leading a group uh, on Wednesday with my, my Connect group, and uh, I was the one leading, so I needed to, I wasn't here last week's Sunday, I needed to go through the sermon and kind of understand it so that I could share with the guys at our group. And I found this phrase or sentence or paragraph to be profound. She said, keep the faith, follow God's path, align yourself with him, and the consequences will be freedom and multi-generational blessing. Isn't that amazing? Follow the Lord, align with his plan and purposes, and the results of your life will be amazing. Multi-generational blessing. And so today, I want to take us back prior to the, the time that the book of Malachi was written, as we have understood from the three weeks that this book or this message was given to the people who had come back from captivity. The post-captivity boys and girls who had experienced the life outside of their nation in, in captivity. And so I want us to go back and understand how they got into that place of captivity. These people lived in Egypt for a very, very long time. And then the Lord gave them the land of their own and established kings over them. And the Lord's purpose was that kings would obey him and follow him, that he would be the one to tell them how they should govern and lead his people. But then kings started out of their own pride and out of the wealth that accumulated. They became arrogant and prideful towards God and they decided to disobey God. In their disobedience, God sent messengers after messengers to warn them that your disobedience is eventually going to lead to your captivity. So repent and return to God. And God sent prophet to do that and after prophet and the kings didn't listen. And so in the end, their disobedience led to their captivity. This one time their enemy, the Assyrians, came and besieged Jerusalem or besieged the entire Judah kingdom. For a long period, and what this means is that literally they just stayed outside of the country and blocked every corner that would allow for the people to go out anywhere. And so if the people survived on anything that they would have imported from outside, it would mean when those reserves finish, 
they would have nothing else to eat. And so it was a strategy of the enemy to almost bankrupt them so that they would not be able to fight when they finally attack. And so they did that and poverty became no more in Israel. The people started suffering and when the enemies noticed that, then they attacked, came into the land, they took all the strong men. They took all the people who were skilled in various things and took them into captivity. And the Bible says one of the commanders of Nebuchadnezzar came and burnt the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And they made the king literally sit and, and, and watch his children being killed in front of him. They wanted to torture him mentally and then they, they put off his eyes and took him into captivity. And so even before captivity, the people had already experienced some form of misfortune. As they are going into captivity in a place of the unknown, in the place where uh, their rights will not be respected, in the place where maybe people, their vulnerables, the elderly, the women and children will be taken advantage of, and they are going into captivity. So they get into captivity for 70 years, some scholars say, they were in captivity. Now imagine for a moment, I understand that you and I have not been in captivity. But imagine for a moment that you are in captivity where literally you are working for something but you don't receive the reward for what you work for. That your reward is not equated to how much you put in but it is equated to how much the person who's leading you decides to give you. Where your women and children can be taken advantage of without your permission because you're in captivity. Imagine the life of these people in captivity it wasn't probably a fun life. It was a miserable life. And so they lived there for 70 years. If you live in an environment where you are captured, and this has nothing to do with the Guptas, but this is just captivity, as in captivity, where you are captured by something or someone, it, it destroys your view of yourself. It breaks down your confidence. If you used to think that you were strong enough, you begin to doubt your strength even because your strength has not been given enough expression because you're in captivity. If you were skilled and you, you were so confident in doing what you do, but because you're in captivity and there's no platform on which you can express your gift and talent, you start to doubt even the very things that you were so sure about because it's the life in captivity. The life in captivity literally makes you uh, uh, subjugated and you, your dreams and everything that you stand for. And this was the life of the children of Israel in Babylon. And so many times they cried to the Lord until one time there was a king called Cyrus who decided to give them grace and permission to go back into their country and rebuild their country. Even as I am thinking about the permission for them to go back, 
where are they going back to? They're going back to a place that reminds them of their pain and sorrow. Because they're not going back to the Jerusalem that they knew. They're going back to a burnt down Jerusalem. They're not going back to a temple that Solomon built where they would worship God gloriously. They're going back to a destroyed temple. They're going back to a place that reminds them of their pain and their sorrow. But they have to go back because the king has now given them permission to go back. And they desire to go back into their land. And so the people go back. And then there's conflict between the people who are coming back from captivity and the people who are in the land. Because the people who are in the land thought, why would you think of coming back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple? Who are you? The likes of Sambalat, who started opposing the rebuilding of the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. And so there was a lot of conflict and things needed to be resolved. And you can imagine the state of mind of these people. Although they are back now, they've managed to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But the glory of the new temple has nothing in comparison to the glory of the previous temple. Because the new temple is a smaller temple, a less glorious temple. And they look at the state of their worship that the priests cannot longer worship God the way God wants to be worshipped because they are bringing lame animals and they are doing all these things that are not pleasing to God. They look at their social life. It is not reflective of the plans and the purposes of God for them as a people. And they look at the supernatural manifestations. It is as though God is so quiet and things are not moving and nothing is happening. And when they look at that, they begin to cry out to God. They begin to cry out to God for God to send them a messenger to speak to them of the things that are on his heart. And so that's when God sent them, obviously, many other prophets amongst them. He sent them Malachi. And so Malachi chapter 4 begins with almost a condemnation against the wicked. And I believe the reason why Malachi chapter 4 begins with that is because the people who were crying out to God had seen the wicked prosper. They had seen people who have no regard for God live happy lives, apparently. They had seen the people who were torturing them, seemingly raising their children and their children becoming more successful than their own children. And they wondered, God, why? Why, Lord, I am the one that fears you. I am the one that follows you. I am the one that walks with you. And yet my life seems to be less than the ones that, rather than the life of the one who doesn't follow and worship you. And so they look at the wicked who are prospering. I don't know if you've been there in your life where the things you trust God by faith, the people who don't trust God get them so easily the things that you are crying out to God like day and night when nobody else is watching you are crying out to God day and night and yet the person who wasn't even praying about it who doesn't even know Jesus in fact they laugh at you for going to church gets that very thing that you are praying for have you been in a situation where you are a single 
guy or lady and you have made a commitment to stay pure before God and you have a friend who doesn't love Jesus and they always go around and you know their life is immoral and yet now they just got engaged and you're wondering, Lord, how did that happen? <laughs> like, I thought I'd keep myself. I thought I would be the one, Lord. How come the wicked seem to be prospering? And so Malachi chapter 4 opens like this. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be like stubble. Is that how you pronounce that word? And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them uh, neither root nor branch. The reason why I asked is because I, I had to go and listen to a voice dictionary to make sure I pronounce that word well. Those are things preachers do before they come so they look more intelligent and smart. The, <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. But anyway, we're back to the word. And so the Lord brings almost this promise of judgment. He says, when you look at the lives of the wicked and you envy them, I want to inform you that the wicked have an end and don't envy their lives. And the end of the, of the wicked is that the, everything that they amass for themselves will result in emptiness. Nothing of the things they have would stand the test of time. Yeah. The Lord says, listen, I want you to know, and by the way, by the way, I believe one of the reasons why God allows for people because God's heart is for people. When John chapter 3, 16 says that God so loved the world, he loved everybody, including Christians and non-Christians. And so the heart of God breaks for people. And I believe that God extends grace to every single person, however good or wicked you are, to give you an opportunity to realize that, hey, there's a God out there who loves me and I can always go back to him. And it is people that choose to stay away from. So this judgment is not because God is so angry and upset at the wicked. It is because God is saying, hey, if you continue to remain in your way, this is the result of your end. And so God says to the people, listen, don't envy the wicked. Don't envy the wicked because the wicked have an end. And then it continues to say, but you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings and you shall go out and grow fat like store-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. I imagine, I, sometimes when I read the Bible, I try to understand the tone of it. Like what tone was God saying this to the messenger, rather, in what tone God was saying this to the messenger. Because in the midst of their hopelessness, in the midst of their wanderings in terms of God, are you with us or are you not with us? Here comes a direct voice of God that is so personal. And he says, but for you who fear my name, not for anybody else, but for you who fear my name, there is a promise for your life. 
There's a promise for you who fear my name. And he says, the promise is that the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. I want to speak to you who fear the name of the Lord today. When things are hard in your life and everybody around you is compromising, but you are choosing to still follow Jesus. When day and night you are on your knees praying for your children or praying for your spouse or praying for your friends, God says there's a promise for you who fear my name. There's a promise for you who fear my name even when things don't make so much sense around you. When, you. when you look at your life and say, Lord, but I've been trusting you. I've entrusted this part of my life to you, but yet nothing is improving and nothing is changing. God says there's a promise for you who fear my name. He looks at them and says, hey, listen, I understand you're coming out of captivity. I understand that some of you are still very idle-minded because of what you are subjected to in captivity, but I want to assure those who fear my name. Listen, fearing God is not a useless thing. It is not an antiquated act. It is not something that you should be laughed about. Fearing God has a promise attached to it. And he says, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. And what does this mean? And this is what I believe it means. When you, when you study the scriptures and the Bible talks about the wings, first of all, here, the son of righteousness is in reference to two things. One is the prophetic coming of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And the second one is the actual restoration of the people who are in captivity that God is going to restore your life to this degree. And so when, when the Bible speaks about wings, it speaks about the shelter of God, the protection of God, or the covering and refuge of God. And so God is saying, when I come and visit your life, the brokenness of your captivity the woundedness of your past and the things that have happened to you will find healing in my wings because that's what I'm going to do. Your personality that has been dented, your personal identity and the way you view yourself that has been distorted by the experiences of life will find its wholeness again under my wings. The Lord says, when I visit you, the pain of your past will no longer be part of your present. Your life is going to be different when I come. He says, I'm coming with healing in my wings. And I believe one of the scriptures the Lord probably would have spoken or referred to would have been Psalm 91. It says, he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will, come, it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. You, this, this, is, this is a promise for you, it's not just a scripture that is there in the Bible. This is a promise for you. He says, when I come with healing in my wings, this is what I'm going to do. 
You are not going to be afraid of the future anymore. You are not going to be afraid of going to bed anymore because of the torture that you have been experiencing at night. You are not going to be afraid of going back to work again because of the things you've been experiencing at work. Because I'm coming with healing in my wings. Fear will not be part of your life any longer. He says, because I will cover you with my feathers. And that's the promise that we have for those who fear the Lord. And then in this scripture, when we go back, it says, But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat. All right? Don't, don't run away. You will grow fat. Like store-fed calves, you will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And I thought three things the Lord is saying to the people coming out of captivity, and the three things the Lord is speaking to you today. One is it says, you will go out. All right? You will grow out, and you will fight out. He says, the, the way you were bound, although you were free physically, but bound mentally, you are going out. You are not going to stay in the place of your captivity anymore, but you are going out in my freedom. He's saying you are growing out. You are going to expand from your confinement. I was saying to someone last week that sometimes as people, we have this skill or tendency of trying to explain God who is so infinite to the point that we want to convince the finite mind to fully comprehend an infinite God. That the creator of the universe who is eternal sometimes we want to explain him in terms that are so temporary that cannot fully capture the essence of who God is. Because he's an eternal God, we are temporary beings. And so he says, you will grow out. Maybe you look at your life right now. And what you are trying to do is to understand how will God ever expand me where I am. Lord, how would this ever happen? How can it be possible that, Lord, we have come out of captivity? How will you expand us? We have lost our soldiers. We have lost our mighty men. How are we going to defend ourselves against our enemies? God says, you will grow out. You are going to be expanded. Maybe you can't understand how, but God is saying it's a promise and your responsibilities. I believe it, Lord, because it's going to happen. And he says, you are going to fight out. And so this is... In simple terms for people who speak French like myself, this is what it means. God released them in freedom, expanded them in righteousness, and endowed them with his strength. And God says, in freedom, I want you to go. I want you to live a life of freedom. I, I don't know the experience of your life. But when I read scripture and understand some of the things that were done in captivity not to try to undermine your personal experience but perhaps to try or attempt to explain to you that perhaps it may have been worse than your case if god was able to give them freedom and for them to be able to live in freedom even when a king who knew no god was yet convinced to give them freedom 
there is no chain that can hold your life in captivity that God cannot break. There's, there's no bondage that you can find yourself in that God has no ability to get you out of. And so he says, you will go out in freedom. You will start to sleep again at night in peace. Because you are going out in freedom, he says. And God says, you will be expanded. And he's given you power to overcome all your challenges and all your obstacles. And then the Bible continues. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. A few things the Lord is saying here. I'm, I'm not an English teacher, but I, I understand conditional terms and so forth and so on. Here the Lord is saying, unless this happens, something else is going to happen. You agree? Unless the hearts of the fathers are restored to their children and the hearts of their children are restored to their fathers, I will smite the earth with a case, with a curse. I beg your pardon. Does that, is that, is that the, all right. Thank you. That there's that understanding. Just wanted to establish that. Praise the Lord. I still remember my English lessons. The, and so the Lord says, if you want to live in a place of blessing, which is the reverse of this, the heart of the fathers must be united with the heart of their children, and the hearts of their children must be united with the hearts of their fathers. Later on in the year, we'll talk about uh, family and you know, natural family, but now I'm not talking about natural family. I want to talk about spiritual family. I want to mention two things about fathers in the Bible. Fathers are the vision, values, and identity bearers of the family. In other words, when you're born in a home, you will carry the name of your dad or the surname of your dad. It gives you an identity in the community. When they ask, where are you from or who are you? You belong to a particular family and that particular family was represented by a man or a dad. All right? So they were the vision, the values, and the identity bearers of the family. The second thing that fathers were, is that fathers were the custodians of the covenant and its promises. And this is mainly referring to the father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were regarded as the fathers of Israel. And oftentimes in prophecy, when God would speak about fathers, there would be by implication a reference to, uh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the fathers of the faith of Israel. And so what God was saying through the prophet here, one is saying, I am going to restore to you, all right, to the, back to the vision and the values that I gave your fathers. Until there's an alignment of those values with your values, you will not be able to continue to live in my blessing. That you've got to align your values with the values of your fathers, referring to the commandment that was given and the covenant that was given to Abraham, repeated to, Jake, to, uh, to Isaac, and then confirmed with Jacob. There we go. That's what the Lord says. And the second thing is that fathers are the custodians of an inheritance. 
And so God, in other words, is saying, I'm bringing you back into your inheritance. The things that you had before, the things that you possessed before that you lost because of your disobedience, I am bringing them back to you and I'm bringing you back into them because of my faithfulness. And so the Lord says, when this happens, when we get our lives aligned with the values of God, when we understand our identity and how God says, or rather who God says we are, and we get back into our inheritance, the Lord says then we are going to be able to live in a place of blessing. Otherwise, when the absence of that is reality, there is going to be a curse that God is going to bring upon the land. Now, if you want to understand many things about curses, go listen to Pastor Andrew's podcast. It was very comprehensive and it will help you understand curses and blessings. But I thought I'd make that point today. And so for you who are writing, you would love to know this. God's heart for his people is for his people to be whole. God doesn't want your life to be broken. God doesn't want you to, 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 to have your personality or your identity dented by any experience of life. God wants you to be whole. God wants you to be restored. I said this in the earlier service, in the morning service. I said, I'm amazed at how church has become so disposable. Listen, I believe there is no way you can sustain your faith outside of a community of believers. If you know of one person who has remained faithful to God in serving him and following him outside of a community of believers, please bring them to me. I would love to meet them. Because in scripture, there's always a community of believers in which someone would be born in when they come into the kingdom. And so let us not make church a place we go to when we have nothing to do on Sunday morning. Let church be a place where we go. We know this is life for us. This is not just a, a place where we go to to hear some soccer updates and, and rugby updates. This is a place we go to to receive life. Amen. Soccer updates are part of it, but you know, yeah, you'll understand that when you come to church, often soccer uh, becomes also part of your life. And then God's heart is for you to go out, for you to grow out, and for you to fight out. Do you mind helping me say that to your person next to you, the three words, go out, grow out, and fight out. Say it with more faith this time. <laughs> and that's the purpose and that's the heart of God for us. He wants us to go out. He wants us to grow out. He wants us to find out. That we begin to live lives that are full of his victory, full of his joy, full of his peace, full of his goodness. That is his heart for us. Can we rise, please? We're going to pray. And if you, as I was talking, you realize that there may be an area in your life where you feel bound by anxiety, depression, anger, I would be so surprised at the 
post-captivity boys or girls didn't have these things. Because seeing your people taken advantage of and feeling powerless would probably result in you feeling angry because of the injustice that you would have seen. The atrocities of the captivity will probably have resulted in some form of depression for some of them and anxiety. But yet God was able to set them free and let them go out, grow out and fight out. I want us to sing this song that I'm no longer a slave to fear. And then after that, we're going to pray that yes, you're no longer a slave to fear or anything because you are a child of God. And God is your dad. He is your father. So let's sing this song together. With a melody you surround me with a song yeah. of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone. Sing it again. You unravel me. Take a moment and just go ahead and pray. If you pray in the Holy Spirit, I would love for you to pray in the Holy Spirit. And if you're new here, you don't know what praying in the Holy Spirit is, just pray these three things. I'm going to go out. I am going to grow out. And I'm going to fight out. Just continue speaking that. Come on, let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus. Lord, we are going out. We are growing out. And we are fighting out in Jesus' name. Nothing can hold us back anymore. Nothing can hold us captive or bound. In Jesus' name, Lord, we are going out. We are growing out and we are fighting out. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Lord, thank you that we are no longer slaves. Slaves to anyone or anything. We are free because we are sons and daughters of God. In Jesus' mighty name. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your freedom over us. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. thank you for restoring us the dreams the visions that we once had that the enemy had taken away from us 
Lord, we thank you that you are restoring those to us in Jesus' name. Yeah, Lord, I just hear the Lord saying that He's restoring those dreams, those things that you had on your heart that you were so passionate about. And to some of you who have stopped dreaming, the Lord is saying, it's time to dream again. It's time to start writing things down again. Because you are in the land of your freedom. In Jesus' name. Come on, family, let's give the Lord a round of applause. Thank you, Jesus.